All right. There will be more time for that at the end of the uh, at the end of our time together this morning. And uh, by the way, that's one of the things I I enjoy most about the Potter's House: uh, the fact that so many people stay afterwards. Uh, not like you stay after school, but they stay, <laughs> and they talk to one another, and I, I don't know what they talk about, and it really doesn't matter to me. They're talking. They're enjoying one another and, and appreciating the fellowship that we have in Christ, so I, uh, I hope that you'll take advantage of that as well. With the enthusiasm you show here, really, you should be sticking around and just saying hello to somebody real good. If you were here last week, you may recall that we use most of the review time to talk about false teachers and false teaching, and I don't want to go into that in detail again, but we do need to hit the high points that we hit last week because Paul is going to say something this week that will tie directly to what he said last week and the week before. Perhaps you'll remember that two weeks ago, Paul talked to us about false teachers and said they were, and I'm quoting this, I'm not making this up, they, were people, they are people of corrupt mind, who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And last week we talked about how easy it is to become like the people that Paul has been describing, people whose minds have been corrupted, people who have been robbed of the truth and people who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And as Paul says that, he's talking about people who at one time held the truth in their hearts, held the truth in their hands, but someone came along and corrupted their think thinking. Someone came along and robbed them of the truth. And last week, we talked about a few things that, that you should have in place in your home to protect yourself and your family from false teaching. The truth is, according to Paul, some of the teachers were on track at one time, but someone came along. Someone came along and robbed them of the truth. And that's what prompted us last week to take some time to consider some advice from God's Word. First of all, make sure that you understand the gospel. Make sure that you understand the gospel so that you can be sure that the ones who are teaching you understand the gospel and are teaching you the gospel. The gospel is a very simple message that teaches us that we're lost and hopeless because we're supposed to die for our sin. We're supposed to be punished for our sin. And that's the bad news. That's the pretext, the context of the gospel. But God loved the people of this world so much that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, and Jesus was punished instead of us. He died in our place. He took our punishment. He died our death. And then he was buried, and, and on the third day, God called Jesus out of the grave to prove to us that he, God, was forever satisfied with the finished work of Christ. He was forever satisfied with Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. False teachers are often people who used to know and understand the gospel, but they've wandered off. And, and so if you ask them to simply explain the gospel to you, they usually can't do it. And we don't mean to say that they've lost their salvation because of that, but we are, they are at a place in their lives where they will confuse other people. And that's what makes them so dangerous. They're going to confuse other people about what the most basic truth in God's word actually is. And since they don't understand something as simple as the gospel, and since they're not teaching something as simple as the gospel, it would be, a, it would be wise to assume that they really don't understand much of anything else in God's word. Because without an understanding of the gospel, nothing else makes sense. And uh, we're not looking for people, by the way, who can mimic the gospel. 
We're not saying that. There are people out there, there are lots of people out there that will say, Jesus died for me, you know, he was buried and he rose again. Great. But what is that truth doing to your life? What, how is that being reflected in what you teach other people? How is that being reflected in, in what you believe? Are you living out the gospel? So the fact that they can mimic the gospel back to you doesn't mean you've got to listen more than that. You've got to have a deeper conversation than that. So they can tell you and show you the gospel by the way they're living. And secondly, once you've had a conversation about the gospel, you can then take a few minutes to look at their lives. Not for the sake of judging them. We're not being given permission to judge them, but for the sake of seeing if what they teach is reflected in how they live. While we're talking about false teaching, let me just say that legalism is one of the most common false doctrines that are out there these days. It is everywhere I turn, everywhere we turn. The doctrine of the legalist is pretty complicated and it takes a long time to learn their ways, but it boils down to something quite simple. Legalists tend to say that believing in Jesus makes us able to keep the law and then they define victorious Christian living as focusing on God's law and keeping all of those 1,300 or so commands. It's been years since we studied the book of Romans together as a church, and we won't take the time to walk through Romans this morning or right now, but, but that thing I just said about focusing on God's law and keeping all God's commands is something that is impossible, at least according to Romans. And what if Paul was right? It is impossible to do the thing that the legalists say you should do or the thing that will lead to victorious Christian living. Um, in other words, the, the way that they're trying to do the Christian life doesn't work. It doesn't work because they're relying on the law which cannot change them. Not even God's law can change us. We're that corrupt. They're relying on the law which cannot transform them instead of relying on the Spirit of God who longs to transform each and every one of us. Remember, when someone is teaching something and his or her life does not line up with what they're teaching, you would it would be safe, uh, it'd be wise for you to keep your distance from that person unless somehow they come to the place where they're willing to listen to you as you teach them God's word, teach them the truth instead of this lie that's led them astray. And thirdly, make sure that you're making time every day to study God's word and in order to make time every day to study God's word, you might just need a plan. And that last bit was from the Department of Redundancy Department, which was where that last bit was from. Um, I know that many of you have made a plan, and I, I, that, that's, that's so encouraging to know. Many of you have made a plan, and I am so thankful for that. Some of you still haven't, but there's still time. Uh, you know, unless you're, you're going to die sometime this afternoon, that might be a bit late to make your plan now, but make a plan. Make sure that you are in God's word because when someone comes up to you with this great new idea that they'd love to have you pursue, if you don't know God's word, you won't recognize the counterfeit that that is. So, and, and, and by the way, we're not talking about unbelievers. I know that, that some of you, somebody came up to me yesterday and said, hey, is that what we're talking about here? Because I have friends who are not believers. Should I create distance between me and them? Absolutely not. <laughs> You've been left here for that very purpose, to make disciples among those who don't believe, to help them to believe what you believe. 
We're not talking about you walking away from people who are unbelievers. We're talking about you creating distance between you and false teachers, these people who have been robbed of the truth. And we're about to talk a little bit more about that. But it'd be wise to keep your distance. And thirdly, make sure... Oh, well, actually, make a plan, and so I guess I, that's where I have to ask if you have a plan. Make a, t- make a plan to spend time every day studying God's Word because that's what's going to save you. In, no, not save you from your sin. That's what's going to protect you from false teaching. So when someone comes along with something new, check, out the gos- check them out on the gospel, check to see that their lives line up with what they're teaching, and, and check God's Word to make sure that what they're teaching you is actually what God is saying. Uh, because they'll twist it. They'll twist it and they'll turn it. Um, and uh, you'll remember, I trust that Paul concluded the passage two weeks ago by, by saying that some people practice godliness because they believe that it's a means to financial gain. And then last week, Paul contested that thought by saying that there are some who think that godliness is a means to financial gain, but how did he say it? How, how, what did he say? Godliness is already great gain. It's not a means to financial gain. It's already great gain, especially when it's mingled with contentment. People who are godly and content with that are the richest people on the planet. And the contentment that Paul talks about here has mostly to do with the the need we have to be content with whatever circumstances we're in. That's one of the things that the Word asks us to do. But it primarily has to do with our financial situation. And without quoting it, Paul plays directly into an idea that pervades the American culture today that comes to light when we ask the question, how much money is enough money? And the answer comes back just a little more. Because that's the common answer among the poor and the rich. There always needs to be a little more. And the the unfortunate thing is, as soon as we get that just a little more, it turns into a lather, rinse, repeat thing. Lather, rinse, repeat. Have you ever, I don't know, you can spend hours in the shower just trying to follow lather, rinse, repeat directions. Because once you get done, you got to do it again. And the same thing is true with this just a little more. Because once we get that just a little more, that, that just a little more that we said we needed, well, then there's just a little more that we, need, we still need. And when we get that, we still need some more. And we're going to spend the rest of our lives getting just a little more. And before you know it, we've grown old and missed most of life. While our spouses and our kids and our grandkids, our friends and our co-workers, and everyone else waited for the day when we would finally stop the pursuit of just a little more because we were actually content with what God had provided. And I know that I've told you this before, but I've spent a fair amount of time with people who are dying, and not once, not once has someone on their deathbed said to me, looking back, I really wish I'd spent more time in the office. Nobody's ever said that to me. Uh, I've also never known anyone to say that they're glad that they spent so much time getting just a little more. But I have heard people say, that they truly wish that they had been able at some point to be content with what they had so that they were able to spend time with the people who mattered. And I don't want to end my life like that. I don't want to end my life by saying, uh, you know, I just, I, I, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. I, I don't want you to end your life that way either. Especially since last week we learned the secret. 
being content in any and every situation. You remember what it was? You can do everything we just talked about. All that stuff that sounds so difficult to just be content, you can do that through him who gives you strength. And that may or may not, like we talked about last week, that may or may not include being able to play the trombone, but it, it certainly includes being able to be content whether we have lots of money or even barely enough. So Paul has talked recently to us about false teachers and their idea that godliness is a means to financial gain. But then he told us that godliness with contentment already is great gain, even without the finances. He's told us that there's danger in wanting to be rich, and people who are eager for wealth have often pierced themselves through with many griefs, many sorrows. And now with false teachers and contentment in his rearview mirror, Paul is about to start another passage with a but, and I'll avoid the jokes so that we can take the but seriously, and as always, we'll start unpacking this passage by reading it. So if you would, if you're able to stand and if you're able to read along uh, aloud with me as, we, uh, as I read, uh, please join me as, I, as we read 1 Timothy 6, 11 to 14. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks. You can take your seat. Truly thankful that we can hold God's word in our hands and, uh, and learn the truth from him when we read. Having read the packet passage, you can perhaps guess which story I've planned to tell you from God's word this morning, though perhaps I should have given you a, a, a spoiler alert before we started reading. Of course, I, I need to tell you the story about Jesus standing before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Something that happened during Passover, the weekend that he was crucified. And we should take note that Paul has referenced that conversation between Jesus and Pilate. So I'd encourage you to be listening for what Paul might have been talking about when he said that Jesus made the good confession. What, what did Paul mean by that? What was the good confession while he was testifying before Pontius Pilate? And with that background, this is the story from God's word coming from all four Gospels. By now... The sun had risen on Friday and the Romans and the Jews began to rush to get this crucifixion thing done before the sun set that day and Friday turned to the Sabbath. You see, it was the preparation day for the Sabbath and so when the Sanhedrin, the members of the Sanhedrin took Jesus to the house of Pilate, the Roman governor, the members of the Sanhedrin refused to go into his house to speak to him. They refused to go in because as Jews, they didn't want to become ceremonially unclean by entering the house of a Gentile so close to the Sabbath. Well, they wouldn't go into Pilate's house, so Pilate came outside to ask them a question. What charges are you bringing against this man, he said. Well, he's a criminal, so what difference does it make what we're, what we're charging him with, they said. Well, then you take him and judge him. Pilate said, but we don't have the authority 
to execute anyone, they said. The Jewish authorities didn't realize it, but by insisting that Jesus be crucified, they were fulfilling the scripture that foretold that Jesus would be crucified instead of being stoned to death, as was the traditional mode of execution by the Jews. When Pilate heard what the the Jewish authorities had to say, he went back into his house, into the judgment hall, and he summoned Jesus to appear before him. Are you the king of the Jews, Pilate said? Jesus looked Pilate in the eye and said, did you come come up with that on your own, or did someone else tell you that about me? I'm not a Jew, Pilate said. Your own people turned you over to me, so what did you do? My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. If it were, my people would have fought to prevent me from being arrested, but my kingdom is from somewhere else. Ha! Pilate said. So you are a king. You can say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. But in reality, I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth, and everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Yeah, but what is truth? Pilate shot back and then went outside. Back to the religious authorities to say quite plainly, there is no basis of a char- for a charge against this man. And then Pilate added, I know that we have a custom around Passover where, where I release one of the prisoners to you, and, and, and would you like for me to release the king of the Jews to you? But they shouted back, no, no, not Jesus. Give us Barabbas instead. Now, Barabbas was a man who had been arrested for taking part in a violent revolt. Pilate was completely unsure of how to deal with this uh, out-of-control situation. So he ordered that Jesus be flogged. Flogging was a brutal punishment carried out by a a Roman soldier, usually a centurion, using the forerunner of the Roman cat and nine tails. The the weapon that they used for flogging had a a long wooden handle with (coughs) several long strips of leather attached. And the leather strips had sharp pieces of bone and glass tied every few inches from the handle all the way to the tip. It was a weapon that would literally rip skin and muscle from the chest, back, and legs of the one being flogged. When they finished flogging him, they made a crown of thorns, and they crushed it down over his forehead, and then they put a purple robe on him, the kind of robe a king might have worn. They pretended to honor him by bowing before him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they slapped him in the face and took great chunks of his beard and pulled it out by the roots. When that was done, Pilate brought Jesus out again to stand before the Jewish authorities, still wearing the purple robe and the crown of thorns. Here's the man that you brought to me, Pilate said. As soon as the Jewish authorities saw Jesus, they began to shout, Crucify him! Crucify him! You take him and crucify him, Pilate said. Because I told you already that, that I, can find, I find him to be innocent of all charges according to Roman law. Well, we also have a law, the leaders of the Jews said. And by that law, he must be put to death because he claims to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard them say that, he was even more afraid to deal with Jesus because his wife had sent him a note earlier in the day to insist that he not condemn Jesus because of a dream that she had had the night before. So the thought that Jesus might be the Son of God was terrifying to Pilate. 
Pilate went back inside the palace and confronted Jesus again by asking, where do you come from? Jesus stood there silently without answering. You refuse to speak to me, Pilate asked. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I have the power to free you or to crucify you? Jesus looked Pilate in the eye and said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from heaven above. Because I could, at this very moment, ask my father, and he would immediately send more than 12 legions of battle angels to set me free. As it is, Jesus went on, the one who handed, over, who handed you, me over to you is guilty of a greater sin than yours. From that point on, Pilate redoubled his efforts to set Jesus free, but the religious leaders started shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar because this man claims to be a king instead of Caesar. And Pilate knew by that point that he was beaten, so he sat down in the judge's seat and called Jesus out of the wings. Here is your king, he said. Take him away, they said. Take him away and crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. They snarled back. Finally, Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. And that is the story from God's word. I think that most of you know that we lived for nine years among the Bukalo tribe in the Sierra Madre Mountains in the Philippines. And, and during that time, I had an itinerant ministry where I was hiking from village to village and, and training, and, in other words, discipling uh, the church leaders that lived in the various villages. That ministry strategy had me on the trail in that mountainous rainforest for, for more than 20 hours every single week. I know I don't look it now, but it did. I remember a day when I was hiking between Tabanganto and Lipuga, and I had just come down out of the forest into a, a grassy area along the river. And, I, and when I say grassy area, I'm not talking about a lawn in a city park. I mean an area where there was a trail, a very narrow trail, that wound through a sea of grass that topped out just below my eye level. I really couldn't see over the top of the grass. I was walking along, minding my own business, like I always did, when suddenly I heard this continuous crashing noise coming from somewhere over there to my left. So I, I stood on my tiptoes and looked across there, and, and I, 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 I saw what, what looked like a, a wake, that, not a funeral, but a wake that was, that was parting the, the grass and, uh, and, and moving really quite quickly, a little bit like a, a boat that, you know, parts the waters, the waves as it goes. And, well, it wasn't a boat, and it wasn't the waters of a lake. Uh, whatever this thing was, it was large and heavy, but I couldn't see it. I could only tell it by the direction of the wake. <laughs> whatever it was, it was headed directly at me. It was, it was kind of, and so uh, I, when I, I, I knew at that moment then that I had two options, but I, I also know the, the, the speed at which this thing was, I had to make it a, a choice quickly. You know how we sometimes say whenever there's a fright, we have to choose either fight or flight? That's, it's, it's, it's a great poem, but it's, it's confusing when you start talking about it. I knew that I could either run away or I could stand there and fight, but whatever this thing was that was coming at me, it was coming so fast that I, I knew I had to decide something really soon. And so I decided that, uh, that 
flight was the right response. Now, so I, 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 I actually turned and, and moved like 10 feet off to the side, you know, off in that direction. Uh, well, actually, it's on the trail, but I, I, I moved 10 feet along the trail, and, and I watched that wake, and as, I, as I'm standing there on the trail, having moved, the wake actually shifted, and now it's coming at me again. So I thought, okay, well, I, I can play this, two can play this game, so I moved, you know, another 20 feet off in that direction, and as I moved over there and stood, I stood up on my tiptoes, and the wake shifted again, and now it's still coming right at me. Um, and I, I, I knew that the only option that I really had was to fight, I guess. Even though I didn't know what I was going to be fighting, it was making an awful lot of racket coming through. And so I pulled my bolo out of my sheath, and, and I set my feet. It was the funniest thing, because it's just this narrow trail. And whatever this is, is about to pop out of the grass, and, well, we'll just see who, who actually wins this. And, and uh, it, it continued straight at me until it was about four, three or four feet away, and then it shifted ever so slightly. And I first saw the, the head and legs as it popped out right over there. I saw the head and front legs, the long body, rear legs, and, uh, and the long tail of a more than six-foot-long monitor lizard. <laughs> you know what adrenaline does, <laughs> does to you at that moment. I stood there with that fight-or-flight-driven response uh, for just a couple of seconds and tried to remember how to breathe. And, and uh, started to breathe again, and then, well, it's still time to go to Lipuga and teach the elders God's word there. So, so, you know, let's just get up and do that. I told you that story because it illustrates something that, that Paul is about to tell Timothy to do that involves both flight and fight. Remember, Paul has warned Timothy about some danger that Timothy was in as he discipled the leaders there in the church at Ephesus. And, and the particular danger that Paul has, has talked about is twofold. The danger from the false teachers and the danger from wanting to be rich. And just to be clear, Paul is, has been concerned about how the false teachers and the desire for wealth might negatively impact the people that Timothy is ministering to. But we're about to see that Paul had an equal concern for how those two things could impact Timothy himself. I say that because of a phrase that Paul used in verse 5 when he said that the false teachers were people who had been robbed of the truth. They were robbed of the truth. Now, if I were to tell you that someone broke into our house last night, if you're just waking up, nobody broke into our But if I were to tell you that, if I were to tell you that somebody broke into our house last night, your first concern would probably be for, for faith and, and anyone else who was in the house when they broke in. But then you might ask what I lost. What did you lose when, you know, during the break-in? And if I say that I lost a million dollars, you might have some questions about that. You know, wondering why I had a million dollars laying around my house that these thieves could just walk off with. And you'd be right to have questions about that because no one could rob me of a million dollars. Do you know why? Because I don't have a million dollars. I don't have a million dollars laying around the house, so don't break in later tonight. I don't have a million dollars laying around anywhere. And, and, and you can't rob something, someone of something that they don't have. And that's what makes Paul's description of the false teachers so sad and so tragic when he says that the false people, the false teachers, are people who have been robbed of the truth. Do you know what that means? That means that the false teachers were people who at one time had the truth. They understood the truth. They were teaching the truth. But then someone came along. 
Apparently, because they decided that the truth wasn't valuable enough to protect, they let them steal it. So imagine that I invite you and a bunch of people you don't know to a dinner in my home, and you see one of the other guys that are, that are there. You don't know this guy, but you see him walk by a table and steal Faith's wallet. You, you look around, and nobody else has seen that, just you. You suppose you might walk over to me and just kind of subtly say, Hey, that guy stole Faith's wallet! Because I know how subtle you're going to be at a time like that. And if I look at you and say, hey, can you help me to get it back? I'm pretty sure you'd be willing to do that. That you'd be willing to, to take whatever risk was necessary. And, and, and maybe, we'd, maybe we'd retrieve it. But, but, but what if I shrug my shoulders and say, meh. So you might, you might ask, did Faith have any cash in her wallet? And I tell you that, well, sure, yeah, she had some cash in the wallet. So you might delicately say, that guy just stole Faith's wallet. You're going to get all worked up about this. And if I shrug my shoulders again and say, meh, then you might ask if there were any credit cards in Faith's wallet or, or maybe some blank checks. And then I reply, yeah, both. So you might gently say, you might, again, remind me that that guy, if you value this thing, that guy just took it I think you'd want to do something about it. And if I again shrug my shoulders and, and say, meh, I think it's pretty likely that you'd be confused at that point. Why, why don't I care enough about my wife's wallet? But you're going to be even more confused when two weeks later, we go to dinner, you and I are invited to dinner over at somebody else's house, and you watch me walk up and grab somebody, some other lady's wallet out of her purse. I'm going to go steal from it. I, thought, I suppose at that, moment, at that point, you might be inclined to hide your wife's purse and her wallet from me because you've seen what I've become in the midst of that confusion. I'm going to guess that that's exactly how it works with false teachers. Based on what Paul is saying here, that's exactly how it works with false teachers. They didn't think of the truth as something to be cherished and protected, and they let the false teachers steal the truth from them. They let the false teachers take it away. And then they invited you to their home, and while you were there, they stole the truth from you and your family. That's how it works. They steal the truth from you, and that's sad, but what's really tragic is when you later begin to go into other people's homes with the goal of stealing the truth from them. And that's how it always works with the false teachers. And I say that because there, there are people in my world today who at one time I would have trusted with the spiritual health of myself, my children, and my grandchildren. But somewhere along the way, they, they let someone into their life who stole the truth from them. And now they're busy stealing the truth from other people. And I'm at a place where I can't trust them with anything anymore. And as far as I'm concerned, that happens too often in the church in America. And that's why we've told you so often that if you see someone who is wandering away into false teaching, do what you can to bring them back to the truth. But if they will not be helped, don't argue with them. Just walk away clean before they begin to steal the truth from you and your family. You remember that conversation about flight or fight? 
That idea of walking away is the very advice that Paul is about to give to Timothy. Not walking away from people who are not believers and need to hear the gospel. Walking away from people who are stealing the gospel, the good news, the truth from other people. But uh, he'll tell Timothy to run away from the false teaching and the love of money and the eagerness for wealth. But he doesn't want Timothy to run away aimlessly, so he'll give Timothy some advice about, uh, about what he can be running toward as he's running away from the false teachers. Look at verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And how do you run toward all those things on that list? Well, let's compare it with that list to a list that Paul gives us in, in Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. You see the similarity between those two verses there on the screen? Paul is talking to Timothy about walking in the Spirit, following the lead of the Spirit of God, pursuing what the Spirit of God puts in his path, doing what the Spirit of God recommends. Paul, uh, you remember from when we studied Galatians and Romans that, that Paul's very clear in saying that it makes no sense for us to try to keep the law because the law cannot change us. Go back and listen to those podcasts from back then. The law cannot change us, even God's law. In fact, God didn't give us his law with the intention of changing us. He gave us the law to prove to us that we never were able to keep it. And we never will be able to keep it, even though we're redeemed, even though the Spirit of God is within us. God has replaced the law with the Spirit of God in our hearts and is willing to walk us through moment by moment as we pursue Him. So instead of submitting ourselves to the control of God's law, we must learn to submit ourselves to the control of God's Spirit. And He tells us that because He knows, and we know, that when we willingly obey the leadership of the Spirit of God, we bear God's character. We bear God's character. Paul's instructing Timothy to hightail it away from the false teachers. Just get out of there. And instead of following their broken ways, Paul tells Timothy to pursue the things that the Spirit of God will accomplish in Timothy's life as Timothy trusts the Spirit. Look what it says in verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And what Paul wrote to Timothy is the same message that he has for us today. Fight the good fight of the faith. In other words, fight to take hold of the eternal life that's been provided for you. Fight to live out that eternal life. He, he tells him to fight to take hold of eternal life. And maybe you'll remember that when we studied John, we understood from Jesus' teaching that eternal life is not speaking of a quantity of life. It's talking about a quality of life. John 17, Jesus defined eternal life for us. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. When Paul tells us to fight the good fight of faith and to, and to take hold of the eternal life to which we've been called, he's not, talking about he's not talking about us trying to save ourselves. That's not what it is. He's talking about us boxing our way through the opposition and grabbing eternal life for ourselves so that the quality of our lives down here reflects the quality of life we'll experience when we're in heaven or self, itself. Now you remember, may remember that 
Earlier, we said that we respond to a fright with either flight or fight. But here in 1 Timothy, Paul will tell Timothy that when the danger, the fright of the false teachers looms over him, he is to respond with both flight and fight. But, listen, please understand this. Paul is not talking about us doing combat with the false teachers. He's not talking about us doing combat at all. In fact, the word that he uses is, is really closer to MMA or mixed martial arts or, or boxing. He's talking about a fight like the ones that you've seen in the arena sometime or, or in the Olympics. Paul is talking to Timothy about something that, that, that Paul himself had been doing for decades already. Something that Paul would continue to do until the very end of his life. Perhaps you know that Paul wrote 2 Timothy after he wrote 1 Timothy. And I want us to see something that Paul wrote there at the very end of 2 Timothy. For I have already, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there's stored up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will, get, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul wasn't talking about being in combat, but he was, he was contending for, competing for the faith. Ever since Paul met Jesus on the, on the road to Damascus, he had been fighting the good fight. And here in 2 Timothy, he says, I've gone 15 rounds. I'm done. <laughs> I just want to hang up my boxing gloves and rest. He says that he, he had been running the race and that God had assigned him to run. And here in 2 Timothy, at the very end of his life, he had run the full marathon. He's ready to take off his running shoes and just get some rest. And ever since Paul met, first met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had consistently kept, guarded, believed in, and obeyed the faith as he protected the gospel for us so that we could be saved by faith today. And having fought the good fight, having run the marathon, having kept the faith, all that Paul was waiting for now was the day that Jesus would reward him uh, for, for his efforts, for what he had done, and he wants the same thing for us. I want the same thing for me, and I confess to wanting the same thing for you. I don't want anybody to steal that from you, that privilege, that's opportunity, that opportunity. And that's why we need to learn to flee from the mess, the confusion and the lies of the false teachers and pursue the Spirit of God. And this next little bit, and, and we'll have to move quickly through it because it's already six after. This next little bit, uh, um, you remember that Paul, last week, we, we talked about the fact that Paul wrote a personal letter to Timothy, Right? And, and that means that some of the things that Paul referenced in this letter were things that Timothy would have immediately understood because it was about a moment that they shared. And uh, unfortunately, we weren't there that day. So when Paul says, um, I, I, I want to talk to you about the good confession that you made on that day in front of all those witnesses. We're coming to that, that passage here. When you had that good confession in front of all those witnesses, I want to talk to you about that day. And, and Timothy would have instantly known what that good confession was. But we don't know today. Now, there's some out there that's, that say that it was the day that Timothy got saved, or, or some will say that it was the day that, that Timothy was baptized. That's when he made the good confession. I don't think that can be the case because, well, um, look at what it says in verse 13. And, and check me here to make sure that I read it, read it correctly. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, 
who, while being baptized by John the baptizer, made the good confession. Is that what it says? No. It says, in the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. So Paul's not talking about the day that Jesus was baptized. He's certainly not talking about the day that Jesus was saved. So I don't think he can be talking about either of those days in Timothy's life either. Now, there were a lot of things that Paul said to Pilate as he stood in Pilate's judgment hall. Things like, my kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus also said, I was born and I came into the world to testify of the truth. And everyone who's on the side of the truth listens to me. That was part of the story. And then later on, Jesus said, you would have no power over me uh, over me if it were not given to you from above. In fact, I could at this moment ask my father and he would immediately send me more than 12 legions of battle angels to set me free. And can I just say something at this point? Just a slight departure, a minute. I don't believe that Jesus was saying to Pilate that you, that you don't have the, the power to crucify me. I don't think that's what he was speaking to. I believe that Jesus was speaking at that moment to the comment that Pilate had made that I have the power to free you. Because that was the last thing that Jesus wanted at that moment. He did not want to be set free. He wanted to do the Father's will so that at that moment on the cross, while he was hanging there, the last words out of his mouth would be, it is finished. I think he's saying to Pilate, you can't take this from me. Even you don't have the authority, the power to set me free. When you take all those things together, I believe that we hear Jesus saying, I know who I am and I know why I'm here. I've come to do the Father's will and to finish his work and no one, no one is going to take that from me. No one is going to take that from me. I believe that's what Paul is talking about. That good confession when he writes to Timothy in verse 13 and 14. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe at that moment Paul is reminding Timothy Something that happened on the day that he was ordained to the ministry. That Timothy made a similar confession to the one that Jesus had made. That Timothy stood there in the presence of many witnesses and said, I know who I am. And I know why I'm here. I'm here to do the Father's will and to finish his work. And no one is going to take that from me. When we start 2 Timothy, Paul is going to say something to Timothy along these very lines. Verse in 2 Timothy 1, 6 to 8, he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, or about me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
Paul knew who Timothy was. Paul knew why Timothy was here. Timothy himself had said it. He was here to do the Father's will and to finish his work. And Timothy, at some point in his life, had said to himself, nobody's going to take that away from me. I'm going to spend the rest of my life. And that leaves me this morning wondering if I still know who I am and why I'm here. I remember the passion I had as a young man when I made the decision to serve him for the rest of my life. (laughs) And now that I've lived most of the rest of my life, I'm asking God to fan that flame, to help me to fan that flame until it finally consumes me. And that leaves me wanting to ask you this morning, do you know who you are? Do you know why you're here? Somebody has said the two most important days in a person's life is the day that they're born and the day that they, the day that they understand why, the day they figure out why. Do you know who you are in Christ Jesus, redeemed by the blood of Christ, if that's true of you today? Do you know why you're here? And are you able to say that I'm here to do the Father's will? That's, that's why I exist. I'm here to do the Father's will and to finish His work, and doggone it, no one. Not even me. It's going to take that from me. Do you know why you're here? If you've never really made the decision to do the Father's will and finish His work, then this morning would be the perfect time to do that. It may end up interrupting your life plans, but I recommend it. If you've made that decision, but that original flame has burned down to an ember, And this morning would be the perfect time to reconfirm that decision. And if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior and you're struggling to understand what I'm even talking about right now, then that's what the gospel is for, to help you to understand that Jesus died for you. He was buried for you. He rose again on the third day. Because God was forever satisfied with the finished work of Christ on your behalf. And if you trust Him as your Savior today, then you can say, I know who I am, and I know why I'm here. I'm here to do the will of God and to finish His work. And no one's going to take that from me. Let me read to you the passage one more time as we conclude. But you... Man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame (coughs) until the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you got to come back next week because that passage I just read to you ended with a comma. Ah, I wish I were in your shoes next week, Brian. It's so beautiful. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father, now God, we bless your name today. 
for the goodness you so consistently show us. Lord, you know that we are we're broken, just like everybody else. But we're indwelt by the Spirit of God and the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead on the resurrection morning is flowing through my veins, Father. Just like it's flowing through the veins of everyone that's here. Teach us to flee the falseness, the lies, the, the false teachers and, and their efforts to steal the truth from us and to pursue instead a, a walk in the Spirit that leads us to ever-increasing maturity and and gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Until the day we finally stand in your presence. When by your grace we'll be able to say. Lord you helped me to know who I was. You helped me to know why. I was there on earth. I was there to do your will. And to finish your work. And thank you Father. That no one. Ever took that from me by your grace, for your glory. Do this work in our hearts. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know why you're here? You know who you are? Go do it. <laughs> Ready? Break. Break.